I love the life that happens here on Sunday. Um, man, I just love watching, you know, everybody's born with gifts, male, female. God doesn't sort of discriminate on giving us giftedness based on for men or women, young or old. And then when we become Christians, God gives us spiritual gifts in addition to that. And, um, and I love watching people exercise their giftedness on Sunday. I was walking in this morning, Lana and I were talking about Barrett's uh, birthday this weekend and, and Hope, um, who, Hope, like whenever I see Hope, I just always feel like she's up to some kind of mischief. Like there's more going on that we don't know about. Uh, and so I don't even remember, Lana, what was the word you used? jump scare and she we were talking about jump scaring you know where you get so scared that you jump and hope was hiding around the door not knowing we were walking in and i walk in and she goes Boo. like it was literally like that like she wasn't going to give me a heart attack but she was going to like gently jump scare me and i was like man i love that that is church like you know, it's not we just walk in and talk about God and don't acknowledge one another, don't let our personality shine through. I love watching new musicians play. Like I love, I love watching 12-year-olds and 17-year-olds play the drums on Sunday. I love, I love all of it. Like God is good at working through our gifts and personalities and wirings and spiritual gifts and all of it. And it's the, it's the best. Like, I love watching you interact with each other. It's like, I love it. I love, I love it so much. So it's good to see you. Today we finish up this series on the Lord's Prayer. If you got a Bible, turn to Matthew 6. Um, I'm just going to kind of jump right in today. Uh, next week we begin Advent. So if you are here next Sunday, you'll see the Christmas trees will be up. Uh, we'll have the Advent readings. Uh, if you've not been approached about reading an Advent devotion, I know a couple of you will be approached about that. If you get asked to read an Advent devotion, if you're not terrified of reading in public, I hope that you'll do that. It's always one of my favorite times of the church year, watching you uh, take part in leading worship. We'll give you a reading that we'll ask you to do. And, um, you know, none of this is performative. Like none of this church stuff and faith stuff is performative. And that's a lot of what the Lord prayer, the Lord's prayer is about. It's Jesus telling his followers, I want you to pray like this. Like I want you to either pray this or I want you to pray like this. But as we're going to see today, it's not performative. Doing this is not punitive. Like we don't do church. We don't do church as adults. We don't do church as teenagers. We don't do church as kids. Maybe sometimes when we're kids, like as punishment, but like this faith journey is relationship and it needs to live and breathe in a way that works for us. And uh, even in the Lord's Prayer, we see Jesus giving us permission to pray in a way that fits with our personalities. Like some of you are expressive in worship. Like when some of you come into worship, like your shoulders kind of go back, your lungs fill, you're ready to interact in worship and sort of it's free flowing and it's so authentic. And for some of you, like that would terrify you. Like, man, if you're feeling the spirit of God at work, like your hands might sort of be in your pockets and kind of lift like this just a little bit. Like, and if that's authentic in worship, that is good too. Like, as long as our goal is honoring Christ and not performing for one another and not punishment and not just what we saw someone else do, I think we're getting it right in prayer and worship and living the Christian journey. And so into that context, let's read today for the last time in this series, Matthew 6, uh, starting in verse 5. We're going to read to verse 13 today and talk about the last line and that line in the Lord's Prayer uh, together. When we get to the Lord's Prayer, by the way, just read it with me if you wouldn't care to. That'd be awesome. Jesus said, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, the actors, the performers. 
For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will, will reward you. It's no performance. It's not a performance here. It's not a performance at home. It's nothing like that. It's no performing, Jesus says. Going on in verse 7, And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles, or some of your versions may say the pagans or the, um, the unbelievers do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So in other words, we don't have to, you know, we've joked, pray for the test we didn't study for, or the raise we think we have to have, or the not getting in trouble with the IRS or whatever the case may be. We pray for those things, but we don't have to pray for them over and over and over and over and over. Uh, repetitively, mindlessly, God knows our hearts and he knows our needs. And then say this with me, if you will. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And today we'll do the line, for thine is the, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We're going to talk about that one today. You finally get to hear, we'll finally get to it. All right. So let's, um, you know, the, the prayer starts with a focus on God and who God is. The first couple of verses, our Father in heaven, holy is your name, kingdom come, will be done on earth as in, in heaven, who God is. And then it shifts to our needs, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Today we're going to talk primarily about those two phrases, lead us not into temptation. Let's start with that. Uh, if some of you write in your Bible, um, next year I really want us, I was talking about that this week, next year I want us to, as a church, kind of collect actively lean into paper Bibles even more as best we can, and even lean into writing in paper Bibles, which for some of you, writing in a paper Bible feels almost like raising your hands like this in worship and singing really loud in a room of 30, like it feels blasphemous and unnatural, but it's okay. You're not going to go to hell. You're not going to get to the, the pearly gates one day and somebody greet you there and be like, I saw you writing that Bible. Like, it's totally good and great to do that. And so if you underline your Bible, you might underline first off today that word lead and that word temptation. We're going to kind of work those backwards. When Jesus talks about temptation, lead us not into temptation. Temptation is just anything that would cause us to sin. It's different than a trial. The Lord will allow us to go into some trials, some tough times in life, but James 1, 13 and 14 promise that God will not tempt us to, to sin. I think we actually have those verses that we can throw up there. Do we have James 1, 13 and 14? I didn't mark it, so if, let me see if I, oh, you're amazing. Let no one when he is tempted uh, say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Going to the next one, I think we put that one in there, maybe, yep. But each person's tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Sometimes I think we blame God for our temptation, and even for me, sometimes I give the devil credit when it's really just my own stupidity and immaturity. You know what I mean? Like, sometimes I'm like, man, this devil's tempting me. No, I'm just allowing myself to find myself in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? Here's one truth. You will never be tempted by God. 
if you're facing temptation, something external, something internal, it wasn't the Lord who got you there. He does not tempt us. Um, our desires, James says, not God, tempt us and entice us. And so we, we can't pray, don't let us be tempted. Uh, we, we, we don't have to fear that God will tempt us. We also don't have to pray, um, not because it's wrong, it's just illogical. We don't have to pray that God won't let us be tempted. Listen, in Matthew 4, 1, if you flipped your Bible back two chapters, you would see that it says the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. So even though God didn't tempt Jesus, God did allow Jesus to go into a situation where he would be tempted. Um, and so life will bring temptation. Like I wish for all of us that when, like, when we were not yet followers of Christ, we had one set of temptations and financial struggles and relational issues and potential medical crises and all of those things that were uh, a problem for the not yet Christians. But when we somehow became Christians, we would no longer deal with temptation. We would no longer have financial troubles. We would no longer have the possibility of sickness. We would no longer have relational issues. I wish it worked that way, but it just doesn't. So it's not that... We don't pray, God, don't lead us into temptation. We can, we should, but we need to understand that God is going to allow us to go through temptation and sickness and financial struggles and relational stuff. And I think sometimes the reason for that in 2021 is so that our neighbors and friends and coworkers and family will look at someone who's struggling with temptation without Christ and someone who's struggling with temptation with Christ and say, hmm, there's a difference. That's compelling. That's oh, so this person has cancer and they're not yet a Christian, and this person has cancer and they are a Christian, hmm, they're going through the same struggle. But look how this one's going through the struggle with Christ compared to the one who's going through the struggle without Christ. Like when Jesus says, don't let us be led into temptation, he's not saying that we won't be tempted. Life is going to bring temptations and trials. There have been a couple of moments this week at our house where like, I just had to give myself permission to cry at the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of some relationships. And I wish I didn't have to go through it, and I wish that it wasn't an issue, and I wish that everything as a follower of Jesus was just always hunky-dory. It's like, God, I love you. Why am I going through this? Why do I feel this way? Why is this relationship broken? And the truth of the gospel and just living in a fallen world is sometimes we're just going to go through stuff. And we do it to bend our hearts toward Jesus. So God will allow us trials and tests to refine us and grow us and deepen our worship and make us more like Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 1, I won't read it to you, but it says this. It says, now these trials have come into your life so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by fire, your faith is greater worth than gold, may come through the fire and you reflect the glory of Christ. That's the JD translation. But go read it. It's right there in First Peter 1. The image is the image of a goldsmith. When a goldsmith gets a piece of gold, they take it and they take that piece of gold with all of its impurities. I'm like talking about a piece of gold they pulled from the rock or the mountains. And it's got all these impurities, so it's some gold and it's some just junk. You know what the goldsmith does to it? He puts it in the fire. And he puts it in the fire so that it takes the piece of gold and he melts it completely down. And as the gold melts with the impurities, the gold in its density goes to the bottom and the impurities come to the top. 
And then the goldsmith allows the, the gold to cool. And as it cools, the, the, hot, the, the junk stays at the top. And in the, in the midst of the going from extreme heat to the room temperature, the goldsmith begins to scrape the impurities that have risen to the top off of the gold. I imagine for the gold, this is an extremely painful process. Now, the goldsmith then takes that piece of gold that is now a little more refined, and he puts it back into the fire and melts it completely down again. And the impurities again begin to come to the top, and he pulls it out of the fire, lets it begin to come to room temperature, begins to scrape the impurities off again. He or she does this, this painful process for the gold over and over until one thing happens. When the goldsmith looks at the piece of gold and perfectly sees his reflection, then he stops melting it and scraping away the impurities. In our life, the temptations that kind of come our way, the trials and tests, are meant to separate the impurities from the gold so that the Lord will begin to look at us when he is done one day in eternity and he will only see his reflection. God is not going to lead us into sin, but he is going to lead us into tests and trials that will sometimes feel like he is melting us down and scraping away painfully at part of who we are. But the truth is, it's not who we are and it's not who we were meant to be. We were made to come forth like gold and reflect God's image. So Jesus says, lead us not into temptation. Now that, care, that idea of leading, like every time I would hear this as a kid, I don't, and I hear it as an adult, I go, why is, like, is God going to like lead me into temptation? That sounds terrible. I hate the sound of that. The idea of leading, do you remember the story? If you've been in small group this, uh, this semester, you, you might've been there for the week where we told the story of the guy who was paralyzed and his buddies put him on a, his buddies put him on a, like a, Basically, they put him on a big old cot and they carried him to Jesus, but they couldn't get him to Jesus. So they ripped the, the roof open and dropped him down in and Jesus healed him. When it says, lead, like, lead us not into temptation, the idea of leading is uh, the idea of being carried. Like Jesus is saying, when you pray, pray, God, don't carry us into temptation. Don't carry us. It's like uh, if you were ever at a pool party, and there was that guy who thought he was like part Hercules, part cool guy and part comedian. And like he decided he was going to pick up people and like throw them over his shoulder and then throw them into the pool. And you've got your cell phone and your uh, you got your cell phone, in your pocket or your wallet or whatever it is that you don't want to get wet. And your hair looks good because you're a teenager at a party and he throws you into the pool. And you're like, God, I hate that guy so much. I hate that dude. Like, that's the idea here. Jesus is saying, pray, Lord, don't throw us over your shoulder and lead us into temptation. Don't throw us, God, uh, mercilessly into that scenario. He's saying, Lord, don't carry us and throw us into temptation to sin. And if we prayed that, if we sat here today and collectively said, Lord, don't carry us into temptation and throw us in and helplessly and assume God would look at every one of us and go, I won't, I won't, I'm not going to, the Lord would say, I'm never going to carry you into a tempting situation and throw you helplessly into it. If we prayed, Lord, don't abandon us in the midst of our temptation, God, I think would say, I won't, I'll never abandon you. I'll never forsake you. 
I'll never forsake you in the deepest temptation. That's not what I'm going to do. If we pray, Lord, don't let us or cause us to even give into temptation, his reply would be, I won't do that. I won't do that. First Corinthians 10, 13 says that there's no temptation that has ever seized any one of us except what's common to every human who's ever lived, including Jesus. Every way that any of us will ever be tempted, the Bible says that he was tempted that way as well and didn't sin. God's not ever going to lead Mark or Lana or Rochelle or Juliana or Thompson into a situation that is unique to somebody else in humanity and something that you cannot lean into him and walk away from without sinning. He won't leave us. He doesn't cause us to give into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. We will go into trials. We will go into tests. He will not throw us into the midst of those things uncaringly. Then he says, deliver us from evil. The better translation, I believe, is uh, deliver us from the evil one or deliver us from evil embodied, the devil or Satan. Deliver us, Jesus says, pray, deliver us from Satan. Deliver us from the devil. In John 10, 10, Jesus says, um, oh, shoot, my brain is like brain, you know, wedding. I almost said the, the word that I don't know what you want your kiddo to hear. So Jesus says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. In John 8, 44, Jesus says that he's talking about Satan and he's talking about how there are some people who are almost like the kids of the devil because they're acting so evil. And he says, oh, you're like your father, the devil. He is a liar and a murderer and the father of lies. And he says, you're acting like him. And so when Jesus thought of the devil, he didn't think of a little guy in a, with a red face and pointy ears and a little pitchfork and a tail that actually came a, a, around in art like 1,500 years later. When Jesus thought of the devil, he thought of the greatest liar, the greatest thief, the greatest murderer of all time. And so when he says, deliver us from evil, he's saying, deliver us from the father of lies, from the evil one. And I want you to know that Satan, the devil, who we don't love to talk about in 2021, like honestly, I have a lot of friends. If you looked at the pastor friends, if you looked at the breadth of our sermons, there would not be much content in 2021 about hell and the devil because we don't like to talk about it because it seems irrational and dark and scary. But if I were the devil, the first tactic I would take would be to get people not talking about me, right? That'd be my best tactic. Make people not believe in me seems like a really, really slick move. And so Jesus uh, would have us be cognizant of him. He says, be, deliver us from the evil one. Understand that the evil one speaks in lies and half-truths and in accusations. If you're a Christian, if you ever hear an accusation, an accusing voice, you are such a this. You will never this. You're never going to get over this. You're never going to get through this. This you will carry to the grave. Accusations are not the voice of God's spirit. That's the voice of the devil. If you hear questions to cause you to doubt, did God really say that? Did that person, they didn't really mean that when they apologized. That really hurt you as a kid, didn't it? Ooh, your boss, your boss, they're coming, he's coming after you. She's coming after you. Don't you think? When you hear questions that are just accusations with a question mark at the end of them, 
That's the devil's voice. The Lord speaks with gentle affirmations. He doesn't have to ask a whole lot of questions. When you hear false urgencies, I believe that's the evil one. You have to do this now. If you don't do this now, it's never going to happen again. We, we talk about this in our house because we have a 24-hour policy on financial decisions. We have to wait 24 hours before we buy anything that is like more of an, uh, more of an a need. Like we just, because listen, the evil one sometimes, like just as a general policy, like 24 hours will clear up the voices of who's telling me to buy what. And I'm cheap. I am cheap and I hate debt. And, um, and so that, if the devil is trying to get me to spend money I don't have, or get my children to spend money that I don't have, um, we just try to take 24 hours and pray on that one and sift through who is telling us that we have to have this thing right right now. And so Jesus says, deliver us from the evil one. That idea of delivering us makes me think about, um, only a few of you in the room will remember this, which is making me realize that I'm getting older. I remember in 1987, a little girl in Texas fell into a well and was stuck there. All right, I'm not as, I'm like right here in the median in the room. This is awesome. Okay, good. Uh, Baby Jessica was this kid's name, and she fell into a well. And I remember, do you remember, like we were watching that every night, whether they could rescue this little girl from this well. She was helpless, and she was, I believe she was like 18 months old or something like that. Here's this helpless kid. It makes me think of the Chilean miners. Can you believe that was 11 years ago that 33 miners were trapped in a well in Chile? And I remember like watching the news. Again, this was must-see television every night and every day or whatever. You would check in and see, are the miners alive? And they thought, we don't know if they're alive. We don't know. We're going to have to go down there in the midst of these hapless Chilean miners and figure out if they're alive or not. And they were all alive. And I remember watching like, It was like the Patriots won the Super Bowl on the night that the Red Sox won the World Series, on the night that the Celtics won the NBA championship, on the night that the Bruins won the Stanley Cup. There was this euphoria as every one of those miners came up and we watched them be rescued because it just seemed so unlikely. And it even makes me think about the miracle of Dunkirk in 1940, May 1940, where 860 Allied ships and 700 just People's boats left out of Great Britain and pulled to the coast of France and over a nine-day period rescued 338,226 Allied troops who were stuck behind enemy lines. 1,500 boats, 700 of them not even government boats, over nine days rescuing almost 350,000 people who were stuck behind Nazi lines. When Jesus says, deliver us from the evil one, that's what he's talking about. Like, deliver us like baby Jessica, like Chilean miners, like allied troops stuck behind Nazi lines. Deliver us from the evil one. I love this quote from C.L. Wilson says, but the dark cannot claim what the light does not surrender. That's good in a Rochelle. (laughs) The dark cannot claim what the light will not surrender. I want to tell you the Lord loves you and he has his hand on you. And if you feel like the Lord has lost his grip on you, I encourage you to pray the Lord's prayer, not mindlessly, intentionally. Lord, deliver us from the evil one. The truth is he will never surrender us, but man, we can forget that. Here's a couple of truths I want to tell you. First of all, I want to tell you that Satan is not all powerful. 
and he is not all present and he is not all knowing, but he is an already defeated enemy. The devil can't read my mind. He can read my body language. He can't read my mind and he can't be everywhere. And there comes a point where we can resist him. And the Bible says that he will flee from us. He's not everywhere and he's not all powerful and he doesn't read our minds and he can't know every single thing about everything. He is a defeated enemy. The war is won at the cross of Jesus. The war against sin and death and the evil one was fought and won. So now we're in the middle of mopping up campaigns that still have to be contested. Here's the second truth I want to tell you. You can and will ever increasingly escape the devil. You, will, can, you can and will ever increasingly escape him and claim the battle victory that is yours in Christ. And you and I can trust that the devil will be ultimately destroyed. God's going to defeat the devil. God's going to defeat the devil. There's a few things about heaven that I'm really looking forward to. Here are some of them. I'm looking forward to seeing my loved ones all in the prime of their life, regardless of when and how they died. I believe when I get to heaven and I see my granddad and grandmother who led me to Jesus, and when I see my mom, who was a single mom who worked three jobs and had a much tougher life than she envisioned that she was signing up for, I envision when I'm there, we're all going to be in the prime of our life. And here's what else I envision. All of us in the prime of our life who have given our life to Christ are going to sit at a big table, the biggest table of all time. Us and everybody who has ever followed Jesus from every nation and language and tribe and tongue from all times, we're going to sit at this table that's just going to go on and on for days. And I'm going to get to sit next to the people who have meant the most to me. And we're all going to be in the prime of our life. And there's just going to be a feast all the way down the table. But at the head of the table is going to be King Jesus, the lamb who was slain for the redemption of the world. And we're all going to raise a glass of wine. And the alcoholics are going to be free from the temptation to battle alcoholism. And we're all going to raise the greatest glass of wine that has ever been served. And we're going to have a meal before us. And we're going to raise a toast to King Jesus all in the prime of our life. And we will toast him as the defeater of the evil one. And he, we will be done with the devil in every temptation that has ever been or ever will be. I look forward to that day more than I look forward to any day in this life. That's going to be a good day. There will be a day where the devil is defeated. In the meantime, I want to tell you that you will defeat him with an ever-increasing sense of victory. There's stuff that you, that you and I are tempted with today that we will not always be tempted with. And that is awesome. That is good and gospel news. How do we defeat him? Let me give you just super quick, five quick ways to stand against temptation. The short answer, by the way, to how we defeat the devil's discipleship. That's the short answer, but here's the long answer to, I think, how we begin to fight the devil. All of these uh, require brutal dependence on God's spirit living in us. One, be conscious of your weakness. How do you fight temptation be, and, and see God's deliverance from the evil one? One, be conscious of your weakness. It's okay to be weak. 
It's okay to not have all the answers and not have everything together. Be conscious of your weakness and your points of weakness. Be aware of your repulsive temptations. Be aware of your respectable temptations. Because we do categorize and we run from our repulsive ones, but we hold our respectable temptations kind of close. Be aware be conscious of your weaknesses too. Understand this. Have confidence that my endurance is greater than Satan's leash. My endurance, my ability to hold off the enemy and wait in temptation is greater than the leash that the devil is on. And so he is an obnoxious and relentless enemy, but he is an enemy on a chain. And my ability to outlast him is longer than his ability to outrun that leash that God's allowed him to be on. He is a roaring lion on a leash. God dictates its length. Number three, have courage to put off the old self. Ephesians 4, 22 talks about that we are called to put off the old self and put on the new self in Christ. Put off the old stuff. If you're like, man, before I knew Jesus, I was at da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Whatever that was, begin to just throw that stuff off as best you can. Number four, grow in knowledge and truth. Grow in knowledge of the word. Grow in discipleship. Grow into who you are made to be in Christ. Whoever you will be that day when we sit at that feast before Jesus, the lamb who was slain, whoever you will be on that day, grow into that person. Not because you have to but because you are free to. We're free to. I don't have to be bound by anger. I don't have to be bound by anxiety. I need through the word of God and the people of God to begin to put those things away. And number five, the fifth way to begin to be delivered from the evil one is the church. The church. Exhort one another, encourage one another, help one another, pray for one another, warn one another, disciple one another. Forgive us our debts, which we talked about last week, is the antidote. We thought a lot in the last two years, more than we ever wanted to, about antidotes and vaccines and everything else, right? Like if I never hear the word vaccine ever again, like I would be just fine, personally, right? Forgive us our debts is the antidote. It's saying we're sick with sin. We need the antidote. We need the cure. But the next line Carry us not into temptation, lead us not into temptation, is the vaccine. It's saying, Holy Spirit, would you keep me from continuing to go into these things? It's preventative medicine. Prayer is preventative medicine. But deliver us from the evil one, to me, does not seem to be either. I hear those. Forgive us our death, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. And I hear those as like three of the same thing. They are three very different things. One is the antidote. One is the vaccine, and the third one's the battle cry. The third one's the battle cry. It's a bunch of soldiers stuck behind enemy, enemy lines saying, deliver us, God, from the evil one. To me, it's the battle cry. So much of this, when we pray, can seem defensive, like we are asking God to defend us. I don't know if you've ever prayed like this or thought like this, but so often when I'm praying, I'm sitting down to pray, my prayers seem to be, I'm praying for forgiveness, I'm praying for maintenance. I'm praying things don't get crazy. Do you ever feel like that? Not often do I pray, God, like, I want to go on the offensive. I want to go on the offensive. I want to kick some behind. I want to be part of the victory campaign, not the maintenance campaign. 
You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be sitting there in the year 15 of the 20-year war where we're just kind of walking the streets, like, doing important things. I want to be there at the beginning when the grenades are flying, and I want to be part of the battle. Deliver us from evil. I want to be praying. I want the Lord to find me praying. Lord, when you come rescue me, I pray you're not always rescuing me from besetting sin. When the Lord rescues me, I don't want him just rescuing me from sin. I want him rescuing me in the middle of the fight. In the middle of the fight. Lord, I pray that you're rescuing me in a fight. In a fight I can't win, but that you have already won in Christ. I thought this week about if I lived in China, uh, I've been following the Enos Cantor, Nike, LeBron James critique thing. If you've been following that at all, the Lakers played the Celtics this week. And LeBron James, I'm going to talk about politics for just a minute, sort of. Uh, LeBron James has been quiet on Nike's partnership and the NBA's partnership in China. Uh, and Enos Cantor, who is a Muslim from Turkey, has been very outspoken about Nike and the NBA being complicit um, with China by silence because of the money uh, in seeing that the Uyghur Muslims are being persecuted and killed and tortured in China um, by the Chinese government. And um, some in the NBA circles would say, oh, that's money's money. We got to leave that alone. A government can do what they want. But Enos Cantor has been very outspoken to say, no, 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 no. We got to stand up for people and we've got to stand against wrong, and this is not okay. I pray that if the Lord were to come and find me, he would not find me having tea with, um, with a government that persecutes its people. I pray that I would have courage if I lived in North Korea, or if I lived in Afghanistan, or if I lived in China, not to sit and be complicit in human injustice. I saw a photo this week, this, uh, about a month ago. If you ever want to look it up, it's a great photo. It's a photo of a guy named August Landmesser. Some of you may know who August Landmesser is. I bet the majority of us don't. August Landmesser in the Nazi regime was at an event one day with hundreds of other Germans. It was a fantastic picture of this moment. It was captured in history. And in the midst of everything, the entire crowd raises the right hand to say, Heil Hitler. And history says that August Landmesser was so repulsed that all of his fellow Germans were doing this. And he didn't set out to be intentional, but August Landmesser in this moment would not do it. Look up the photo. It's an unbelievable photo. In a world where people are bowing to the evil one and even sort of denying he even exists, I pray that I would have the courage and you would have the courage of August Landmesser that says, if everybody else does it, I will not raise my hand. I will not be complicit in the midst of the battle of the evil one. Lord, deliver us in a fight for holiness. Lord, deliver us in a fight for our marriages and for our teenagers and for our purity. Lord, deliver us for starting small groups and even starting other churches. Lord, deliver us for caring for refugees who are living in our neighborhood and in our city. Lord, deliver us for fighting 
against human trafficking. Lord, deliver us for protecting the vulnerable children and families. Lord, deliver us for responding in crises. Lord, deliver us for strengthening and sharing the gospel in Charlestown and in other communities. Lord, deliver us so that we would do our part in fulfilling the Great Commission. Lord, deliver us in the fight, not in the church building. Deliver us in the fight, in the middle of what you're doing in this broken world. And the next, every time we walk out of here, we walk into the battlefield behind enemy lines. I wish it were less. (laughs) I would sound like less of a weirdo if I was like, this is just what we do on Sunday for an hour, and then we go do our lives, and everything is all great, and they're all the same. But the truth of the gospel is when we walk out of here, we walk into a world behind enemy lines. And we have to conduct ourselves not fighting a country or a president or a government or a political party or a region or this or that. We are fighting against an enemy, the evil one, who would seek to destroy us. And so the the prayer ends, the Lord's Prayer ends. It's not in the oldest manuscripts. Here's, Here's why we didn't include, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We believe as a church that when Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, James, Jude, all the people who wrote all the books of the Bible, what they originally wrote was inspired by God's Holy Spirit. Now, we don't have any of those very original manuscripts anymore, but over the centuries, so let me make sure I'm getting my, let me get it correctly. Like, if this is zero AD, BC, this is zero when Jesus is born, and we're here in 2021, And the King James Bible was written about here in the early 1500s, right? If I remember right, I think that's right. Uh, Or early 1600s. What they were relying on when they wrote the King James was manuscripts that came back to around here. Three, four, five hundred. As archaeology has gotten better and people have dug into more caves and holes in the Middle East, they have found older manuscripts. And when they look at the oldest manuscripts that are the closest to the original copies, they did not find for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Even though the church believed that for a long time. So did Jesus conclude his prayers with for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That seems like to me something Jesus would say. Was it probably in what Matthew wrote originally? It probably wasn't. It would seem that that's not what Matthew wrote. So if you pray for yours is the power and the the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, I think that's a fitting way to end every prayer. It sounds like a battle cry to me. Like that doesn't sound like, in Jesus' name we pray. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, feels like we have raised the sword, we're holding the shield and we are going to fight. So if you end your prayer with that, God bless. I mean, that's a fitting end of the prayer. And I believe that Jesus probably ended with that doxology, that right praise over and over and over. If you don't, that's okay too. But I wanted to wait and clarify why that was not in our version of the Bible. It was in the version that a lot of you grew up memorizing. The gospel of Jesus lets God be Father, King, ours, and Holy Other. It provides for our needs. The Lord's Prayer and the Gospel forgives us. It protects us and it delivers us in a fight. It delivers us in the fight. I pray that Jesus would find us in the fight. Let me pray for us. God, 
We love you. Lord, I look forward to the day when I sit with these people around the biggest table ever, the one that makes the greatest Thanksgiving table look like nothing. And we raise a glass to King Jesus, the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. And Lord, if there's anybody sitting in here who has never become part of your family, they've never turned from their self-sovereignty or sin and trusted you, I pray that they would do that. I pray that they would literally just turn their hearts to you and that you would receive them. They would ask forgiveness and ask you to come into their life and be the Lord of, your, of their life. Lord, I pray that there would be no one who comes in here Sunday after Sunday and isn't sure about that. God, I love these people too much to, to want them to um, be good church people in this life and not certain about where they would spend eternity. Lord, for every one of us, I pray that as we look forward to that day, God, that we would be inspired and diligent to be in the middle of the fight. That you would, I pray you would lead us not into temptation, but God, I pray that you would deliver us from the evil one in the middle of the fight. Lord, let us be a church that's in the middle of the fight. And every dollar we give, and every prayer we pray, every time we show up for small group or come on Sunday, every new person we meet, every time we invite a neighbor, every time we serve, Every time, God, that somebody asks us to go the second mile, the third mile, the fourth mile, every time we have to forgive for that person who just seems like they should be getting their crap together, Lord, I pray, God, that we would do that as a people in the middle of the fight. Looking forward to toasting King Jesus one day. Lord, would you do more in, for, with, and through us? And God, I pray that you would find us to be a faithful people, a praying people who are praying as you have called us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.